You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to Closing Night, a theater history podcast celebrating famous and forgotten Broadway shows that closed too soon. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and in the previous episode, you heard about the contentious history of the Marquee Theater. I brought you sound bites of those protesting its construction, as well as portions of interviews I had with those well acquainted with the marquee. Well, throughout this first season and in between the main episodes, I'll take you further behind the scenes by giving you bonus episodes of some of these interviews I've had with artists, creatives, and industry experts. Today, you'll be hearing from Joe Rosenberg, one of the founders of Save the Theaters, and someone who has been instrumental in landmarking historic Broadway venues throughout the New York City Theater District. He was certainly a wealth of knowledge as I did research for that first episode about events that happened more than 40 years ago. So after the break, you'll hear my conversation with Joe as he shares his own background and interests that led him to save the theaters, as well as the hard-fought battles and protests that surrounded the Portman Hotel and Theater Complex. My name is Joe Rosenberg, and when I came to New York, I was a medical biochemist, and that's what brought me to New York. I, I was um, chosen to do a uh, postdoctoral research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, where I was living in uh, university housing. And then I moved to Brooklyn Heights when my schooling was finished, and that's when I got interested in architecture. I'd always been interested in theaters. I don't know why, but I, and I'm not an actor. So I don't know why. I've been interested in movie palaces more than Broadway theaters. Broadway theaters came later. And then I got a job. I was a teacher at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn Heights, medical biochemistry. And um, Radio City Music Hall was uh, announced that it was going to be demolished. So through a series of events, I became involved in the Show People's Committee to Save Radio City and gave them advice on how to go to landmarking because they really didn't know. The, the committee of show peoples, the Rockettes, it was mostly the head of the dancers and the head, and the head of the singers. Uh, they wanted to save the musical, but they really didn't know what route to go to save it legal. I mean, you know, you can't just save a building. You have to, <laughs> you have to do something. The government has to approve it. So I led them towards uh, the landmarking route. And, and by the way, during uh, the Radio City landmarking effort something came up that i wanted to avoid and was actually a very good argument that rockefeller center came up with as to why theaters could not be designated landmarks our landmarks law says that only interiors that are open to the public can be designated landmarks public library is um, open to the public, so it could be designated the Met Museum, can be designated. But their argument was theaters are not open to the public. They're only open 
to people who pay admission. And I don't know if legally the courts would accept that, but it was a good argument. And what we did with Radio City and what the state did was to give Rockefeller Center reasons not not to argue once they were designated, not to take them to court, okay? And that's what we wanted to do with the designation of the Broadway theaters, is to get the theaters designated, knowing that the owners would be very, very unhappy about it and would want to take you to court and try to reverse the landmark designation. So um, we realized you, you just have to come up with something to shut them up, but publicly to make them happy so that they get something out of the landmark designation. And the thing that did that was normally if a building is designated a landmark, the owner of the building can sell all of the unused air above the building. For instance, on a narrow street, you can build a building, let's say, 10 or 12 stories high. On a wide avenue, you can build a building much higher because the height of a building has something to do with the width of the street it's on. Okay, so let's say a theater could be 15 floors high, but it's only six floors high. That means that when you designate the theater, you're taking away, the owner can't demolish the theater and can't build over the theater. If the exterior of the theater is designated a landmark, they'll never get permission to build over the theater because it'll destroy the looks of the theater that's there. Okay, so you're taking away from the owner of the building the 10 floors there above the theater that they could use could get money from, but can't because it's a landmark. So the landmarks law has always said you can transfer that unused air, but it has to be across the street or next door. But in the theater district, across the street is another theater, and next door could be another theater. So that really isn't that helpful to a theater owner. So what the Landmarks Commission did uh, was they said, okay, the owners of the theaters could sell the unused air to someone who owned property on 8th Avenue, transferring it to another place, another neighborhood. So suddenly the owners of the theaters could transfer the air rights and really make a lot of money. And most of the tall buildings now on 8th Avenue are built with air rights over theaters. Well, you, you look at any of the new buildings built on 8th Avenue since 1980-whatever, they're all using air rights, and that made the theater people happy. So then, as far as your connection with it, then you'd mentioned that you helped found that Save the Theaters campaign. Was that correct? Yeah. So what, what happened is, after Radio City was designated a landmark, the owner of the New Amsterdam Theater, he announced that he was going to close the theater. Uh, it was a movie theater. It was... Um, he was showing uh, Death Wish, uh, Jaws, some black exploitation movies. He announced he was going to close the theater, sell the theater property plus the corner property to someone who wanted to demolish the theater. So I decided uh, we have to get that theater designated landmark. To be honest, you walked in and everything was painted brown. You didn't realize what a beautiful theater is, but you knew it was a beautiful theater. So I didn't start a committee. I just did it. And the Landmarks Commission was very helpful. They didn't do a good job with trying to designate Radio City Music Hall. 
the mayor and the chairman of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, who was a wonderful guy, were under pressure not to designate Radio City Musical. The only reason they designated was we put so much public pressure through publicity on them that they had no choice. Okay, so with the New Amsterdam Theater, no one really cared one way or the other. So it was much easier for the Landmarks Commission to get the theater designated a landmark. And once the theater was designated a landmark, the owner of the theater just locked the doors and walked away. And the theater became abandoned. It was closed. He closed it the day it was designated a landmark. And in New York, if you don't pay taxes, the city takes over the building. It doesn't want to, but it does. So the city owned the New Amsterdam Theater for 15 years. It was abandoned. We begged the city to put on a new roof, and they wouldn't do it. So water started leaking in, and then um, the rest is history. Disney came along. Right, yeah. And that was the first theater, really, that the Landmarks Commission willingly designated a landmark. And, you know, it was on 42nd Street. And 42nd Street at that time, no one cared about. And then there had been plans. The government agency was called UDAG, Urban Development, I don't know what the A stands for, Grant. Their philosophy was to bulldoze slums and build new buildings in the empty space. And they had their eye on Times Square. To them, Times Square was a slum. And they had their eye on Times Square since the 1970s. And something always came up. They always wanted to tear down that block. It it was just ingrained in their mind. And the city supported it. The state supported it. The Empire State Development supported it. Because the government, U.S. government was going to pay for it. But something always came up, either a recession or something always came up and it was delayed. So no one ever objected or demonstrated against it. I mean, they knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen in the 1970s and nobody did anything about it. And once it finally looked like it was going to happen, then we woke up and I went to Actors Equity. I said, look, we're going to lose five theaters. Three of them are theaters. One is a movie theater and one is a store that still has the theater architecture. We're going to lose them. So can we start a group to try to save them? And Equity started Save the Theaters Incorporated. Equity funded it. And then Equity found an executive director. He was working in Washington. They brought him up from Washington. And so basically, you know, I just came up with the idea and Equity did all the work. And how did Joe Papp get involved with it? You know, it wasn't at the beginning. When we were working on Radio City Musical, he wanted to get involved. That was in 79. So in the mid-80s, one Save the Theater got going. I realized from the experience with Radio City Musical that we needed publicity. We were against the same thing, only with different characters. Koch, I think, was mayor. And here we were objecting to something that had been on the books for 10 years and no one said anything. And there was a lot of money involved, a lot of planning involved. And suddenly this upstart group comes and objects when they should have objected 10 years ago. So I knew we were 
on the weekend from the very beginning. So we need it, just like Radio City was on the weekend because of uh, Nelson Rockefeller wanting to demolish it. So anyway, so we knew that our only hope was to get publicity. And so we started contacting as many people as possible who were household names, and Joe Papp was one of them. And he really, he got involved a million percent. So he wasn't involved in creating it, but he was more brought on once the Save the Theaters was founded. Yeah, I think, it, he was I think it got up. to the point where everyone, you know. Assumed it was his <laughs> baby. Right. Yeah, it was his baby. And, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, he did so much for it. So what's the difference? Yeah, because I found some very interesting video of some of those demonstrations that happened in March of 1982. So, of course, he's the one leading it all and bringing on different yeah, actors by that and such. Time, so. By that time, he was very involved. And he brought a lot of people in. He brought in, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm going to assume that he brought in Colleen Dewhurst. I wouldn't be surprised if he brought in Liza Minnelli. I don't think he brought in Christopher Reed. I think, I mean, Christopher became very involved, but I don't think it was him that brought him in. But yeah, he did a lot, and he did a lot by himself. So he, he deserves all the credit, even if. He didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, because I found a, a lot of audio clip quotes from him, so I'm interspersing those in the episode for sure. So getting more specific, what do you know about John Portman himself and this original plan that he had for Times Square? Well, John Portman at the time was a star architect. He was uh, designing the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. He designed the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta and the Peach Tree. I think it's called the Peach Tree Center in Atlanta. And he wanted to do something in New York. And all of his hotels were these big atriums with elevators going up and down. All of the hotels are still standing. I mean, you go to San Francisco on California Street in the financial district and that's his that hotel i think was being built at the same time so anyway so he wanted his hotel and also his hotels were not only big atriums but they were everything on the inside of the hotel nothing on the outside so it was drawing life in most cities it didn't matter but in new york he Life is on the street, not inside the buildings. So to draw all these people and restaurants and that stuff inside the building and then leave the outside of the building with not even any stores, it was just completely anti-New York. But that's what John Portman was all about. I Big gotcha. atriums and everything happening inside the hotel. And initially, there wasn't going to be a theater involved. Skyscraper, tall building, tall office building development by zoning regulations stopped at 6th Avenue. Otherwise, you could build tall glass buildings in midtown Manhattan. I don't know about from the East River, but let's say from 3rd Avenue, and it could be from 2nd Avenue, over to 6th Avenue. And that included half of the block between 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue. But once you get to half of the block away west of 6th Avenue, 
you could no, and, and that was the beginning of Times Square, you could not build tall buildings. So all of the older buildings existed solely because you couldn't build tall buildings. So why spend the money to knock them down? Okay. So Koch, as part of the decline of Times Square, uh, the philosophy was let's allow all the old buildings in Times Square to be torn down for new buildings. And so Koch, so the city changes zoning regulations, encouraging tall office buildings. So we objected and we, mostly the Municipal Arts Society, they were the organization that at that time led the preservation movement. It's less so now, but at that time it was. And the Municipal Art Society objected. And they objected mainly because it would mean the destruction of theaters. The theaters hadn't yet been designated landmarks. It would mean the demolition of a lot of old buildings, but it would also mean the disappearance of a lot of advertising signs for which Times Square was known. Because if you build a tall corporate building, office building, the corporate mentality is not to put advertising signs on their buildings. So at, at that time, all the most of the signs were neon signs, uh, incandescent bulb signs, and they were all owned and operated by the same family company, Artcraft Strauss. So we got together with Artcraft Strauss and invited the entire city government to come into Times Square one evening and Artcraft Strauss turned off all the advertising signs at one time. The city government was standing at 45th and Broadway, right in the center, and all the signs went off. And for the first time since World War II, everyone saw what Times Square looked like without any signs. So the zoning regulations, which encouraged tall buildings to be built in Times Square, the two things were added to the zoning regulations. Number one, every tall building had to have 10% of its space dedicated to the performing arts. And the performing arts meant a theater, but didn't have to mean a theater. For instance, in um, what's now the Bertelsmann Building, it was a movie theater. It was called the State Theater that had been on the site, the Movie Palace. But it was a five-screen cinemaplex. But a lot of other tall buildings were built with theaters in order to, to satisfy this regulation. And the Minskoff Theater is a result of that. The Marquis Theater is a result of that. The Gershwin Theater is a result of that. And then the Laura Pels Theater was built as the American Place Theater, but it was built in order to satisfy that regulation. Okay, the other part of the regulation was that every tall building built in Times Square had to have a setback around the 10th floor and something like 60% of the facade of the building and 60% of the setback space had to be flashing advertising signs. They couldn't be steady. They had to be electric. They could be LED at the time. 
but they had to be moving. And if a building didn't cover 60% of the facade, they would have to leave 50% of the interior empty. So if they wanted to rent out the entire building, they had to follow the sign regulations. So those were the two sides of allowing tall buildings to be built in Times Square. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The biggest point of contention when it came to the theater and hotel complex that would eventually become the Marquee was that it meant demolishing five theater buildings, the Astor, Gaiety, Helen Hayes, Bijou, and Morosco Theaters. We pick up with Joe talking about the significance of these historic venues. Now, in doing my own research, I calculated that there was about 72 theaters within the 20th century. 72 theaters had been demolished. So why would you say that these five theaters may have stood out from all those others that had come down over the century? Well, first of all, this is a phenomenon over the entire country. At one time, there I think at its height, there were 80-some Broadway theaters. But you have to keep in mind, they weren't in Times Square. They weren't all in Times Square. Most of the demolished theaters you're talking about where, where the garment district is now, mm-hmm. between 34th Street and 42nd Street. That was the theater district. And all of those theaters were demolished for the garment district buildings. Then there were a lot of theaters on in the 40s, uh, let's say 46, 47, 48, 49th, between 6th Avenue and where the court theater is located. And they were all demolished for the new Rockefeller Center, all those new buildings, okay? And then at the same time, motion picture palaces were being demolished all over the country. You know, in Times Square, I don't know how many motion picture palaces we had, but we have zero now. Radio City Music Hall is not in Times Square. So all of the movie palaces disappeared in Times Square and in every other city. But as soon as you just have a few, as soon as you demolish all of your motion picture palaces and you have one standing, then the city wants to save the one that's standing. They didn't care until then. So when we had 80 theaters and theaters were still being built, otherwise theaters were being demolished south of 42nd Street, but there were until 1928, they were being built north of 42nd Street. I think the Barry Moore was the last one. You could tear down a theater. Theaters were torn down all the time. I mean, all the theaters in Soho, 
That was a theater district one time, 14th Street. Mm. They all disappeared. Uh, there was no theaters were just expendable until you just have a few more. And then when we lost five at one time, we had 35 operating theaters left. Then it became a reality. If we lose five theaters seven more times, we have no theaters left. So those five theaters disappearing brought the number down, not the one, but brought them down to a point where you could vision New York not having theaters. It was a tipping point. Right. So it became like, we have to stop this now before it goes further. Yeah. Yeah, That makes total sense. So we'll just go through these one by one. The first was the Astor Theater. And what I know about it is that it had the first Pulitzer Prize winning drama. And do you know of any other significance of this theater itself? Let me, uh, talking about the significance of a theater like the Astor. One of the arguments, one of our arguments against the Marquee Theater was you were destroying five theaters, uh, most of them intimate playhouses for one big musical house. The city's argument, the pro-argument for the Marquee was you were destroying so many seats in the five theaters. Actually, keep in mind, it's really just three theaters that were Broadway theaters. So the number of seats you were destroying between the Morosco, the Helen Hayes, and the Bijou, the number of seats you were destroying was less than the number of seats you were building with the marquee. So they were saying you're gaining seats, and we were saying yes, but you're losing a type of theater that's irreplaceable, and the marquee is not replacing that type of theater. So the Astor Theater you know, was one of those intimate theaters. Yeah. And it was turned into a movie house, or I think in the 1920s, I believe. Right. And then it stayed that way till 1972. What happened between 72 and 82? Do you know what did it just stand empty? It became a store. You would walk into the store. It's like there's a jewelry store in LA where you walk in and the theater is there. And the same thing happened here. It became a store, but it could easily easily having reconverted back into a theater. Okay. All right. It just had to put the seats back in. Okay. Getting to the gaiety, which was eventually turned into a movie house as well. Right. Uh, called the Victoria. And is that what it remained was a movie house until 82? It remained a movie house, but then towards the end, it became a discotheque. Oh, okay. But that theater, a lot of the original architecture, when it became a movie theater over the years, a lot of the original architecture was either lost or covered over, and you would walk into the theater and it would just be a modern theater without much ornamentation. Okay. Getting to the Helen Hayes, so it was originally a burlesque place called the Follies Bergere, then it was called the Fulton well, Theater. It was, yeah, it was originally, a when it was the Follies Bergere, it was a nightclub. It was table seating. It was like a dinner theater almost with cocktails. Yeah, and, and then it yeah. became the Fulton Theater. It never worked out as a, uh, financially as a Follies Bergere. Yeah, I heard that that closed fairly quickly. Then it became the Fulton. Yeah. A lot of notable productions there. And then in 1951, that's when it changed its name to Helen Hayes. Do you know why exactly that change happened? No, I don't. <laughs> but I do have a little story about Helen Hayes. She lived in Nyack, and there was a theater in Nyack named after her, a, a live theater. I think it had been a movie theater that burned down. There was a fire, and they wanted to raise money to restore the theater, 
So they organized the or, the group that wanted to save the theater, organized Helen Hayes to give lectures. Only she couldn't lecture about historic theater. So they asked if I would come up to Nyack and go on the tour with her. And I would talk about historic theaters and she would talk about Helen Hayes. And let me tell you, she was a, a dear, a dear person. And I loved her to bits. And sometimes we'd bring her into New York and we'd see a show. And I know that when I took her to see Driving Miss Daisy, okay, and I know she wanted so bad to do the movie, even though she was already 80, in her, well into her 80s. Okay, but anyway, when they were going to demolish the Helen Hayes Theater, I went to her and I was so sure she would join us and help us. And she wouldn't do it. She was very nice about it. She wouldn't do it. I just had to let it happen because I loved her so much. I couldn't let it affect the way I felt about her. But she wouldn't do it. Later on, I found out that they had already promised her that they would change the Little Theater into the Helen Hayes Theater. So as far as her having a theater named after her, she was going to still have it. And she didn't really care which theater was named after who was it that approached her do you know about the little theater being named no i don't know but i have a feeling it was jerry schoenfeld the head of the schubert organization okay first of all he really had times square in his heart when times square was at its lowest it would have been much lower if it hadn't been for jerry okay so i really admire what he did for times square however he was so much against what we were doing so much against it he did everything to stop us. He even went as far as telling people, actors, that if you demonstrate with these guys, you're not going to appear in any Schubert theater, wow. Schubert-owned theater. Okay, so a lot of the people who were demonstrating, whether they knew it or not, they may not have known about the threat. They were taking their career in their hands, whether they knew it or not. That said... When I was very naive and when Save the Theaters first began, I wanted to have a town hall meeting and I went very naively, went to Jerry and I asked him if he would give us a Lyceum Theater. And I was sitting in his office and I, and I, I can't believe I did this. Anyway, I'm sitting in his office and a phone call comes in and I don't know who's on the other end of the line. And all I hear is swearing from Jerry calling this guy who he's talking to every four-letter word in the book. And then I realized they were talking about the upcoming Nicholas Nickleby, which both the Schubert organization and the Niederlanders were co-producing. And then I realized that Jimmy Niederlander was at the other side of the line, and he was probably using the same four-letter words to Jerry that Jerry was using. And so that was their relationship. So anyway, Jerry gets off the phone and says, look, I am going to do everything I can to stop you in your quest to save these theaters. Basically, I don't want to be told what to do with my theaters. And so I'm going to do everything, but I'll give you the Lyceum. Not only will I give you the Lyceum, but I'll pay all the union expenses. <laughs> and he did. How about that? <laughs> I guess I, he, he was he was ready for a fight, but I guess he wanted to be a fair fight. So to yeah. speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, with regards to the Bijou, from everything I understand, the Bijou didn't really have much success as a theater. 
I have a feeling that somewhere along the line, the Bijou actually was not successful and was actually made smaller. Mm. I think whenever it became the television studio, radio studios, then yeah. it started to to shift. And yeah, yeah, but then it eventually went back into a theater again before it closed in 82. Well, yeah, a lot of theaters follow that route. A lot of theaters were saved by radio and television becoming studios. And the Morosco is the last one. From what it seems like, Morosco seemed to be probably the most significant as far as theater history of the five. It was. And I was living in Brooklyn Heights. And I get a call. It was after midnight. I get a call from the chair of the Landmarks Preservation Commission who wasn't, he, there was too much pressure on him not to designate the theaters as landmarks, but there was an agreement that certain things in the Morosco and the Helen Hayes had to be saved. I mean, things that I couldn't care less about unless there's a theater, exit signs. But also the Morosco had three beautiful, I think three, beautiful chandeliers, and they were supposed to be saved and put in storage, okay? So the theaters were not to be demolished until that happened, until it was taken out. So I get a call after midnight from the chairman of the Landmarks Commission saying that he got word that the Morosco was being demolished prematurely without permit because the chandeliers were still there. Would I go by subway? Would I go to Times Square? and tell them to stop. So I was furious because I was so angry at him for letting them be demolished, but I, I did what he said. He took the subway to Times Square. I talked to the foreman, and the foreman actually listened. But meanwhile, there was a big hole in the wall, and you could see the chandelier through the hole. And I went bananas. I I went bananas, and... um. I just remember going to a payphone and making a call and crying during the conversation because the theater had already been demolished. I mean, not completely. So, yeah, uh, that was the most significant architecture. Well, what was that final day of demonstrations like? So th there had been these public street demonstrations in front of the Morosco and Helen Hayes. But then the final day came where they knew it was going to come down. What, what was the, the mood of it? The mood of it was true anger, and keep in mind, part of it was theater, but people were arrested during the demonstrations because they were stopping the bulldozers. But it was resignation, because by that point, I mean, you were seeing, you were seeing that it wasn't doing any good because the theaters were being demolished. So it was anger, but it was more anger from the inside, not anger that you thought it would change anything. It was hatred towards the officials who were allowing it to happen. And from what I understand, that resentment continued on even after the marquee had been built, true? That resentment uh, well, definitely happened. There was definitely resentment towards the Marriott Marquis and the theater community. In fact, um, I mean, I bring, my company brings theater groups in New York, and I would never in my life have used the Marriott Marquis for my groups. Yes, there was a lot of resentment, but the Marriott Marquis did a smart thing. They gave a lot of money to Equity Fights AIDS, and they 
donated their ballroom space towards a lot of theater-related activities, including opening nights. So they really made an effort. And I'd like to say that looking back, and when this was happening, I never thought I would ever dare say anything like this. Looking back, the Marriott, there were aspects of the Marriott Marquis that helped Times Square and helped save the remaining theaters. First of all, the resentment that you're talking about and the anger that you're talking about, there were a lot of people with the city, including the Landmarks Preservation Commission, that wanted to get back into the good side of the people who were angry at them. Okay. And basically, the Landmarks Commission, who came to us and said, okay, we didn't save these theaters. We regret it. In some ways, we were forced into doing this. What can we do to redeem ourselves? And we said, you can let us designate the remaining theaters as landmarks so that this can't happen again. And they said, fine. So if it hadn't been for the Marriott Marquis, you know, and then something else happened. And I don't know, I don't know whose idea this was, but it was someone's idea that when they were building the Marriott Marquis, that they wouldn't have to pay sales tax on any material that they were using for the construction of the hotel. And instead, this money, the sales tax money, went into a fund. And at that time, no one knew what the fund would pay for. Okay, but it was a fund and it was a lot of money because it was all the sales tax money. And it turns out that eventually this seed money was used to fund the Times Square Alliance. And the Times Square Alliance was the backbone of the renaissance of Times Square. Which was, from what I understand, part of the reason for the Portman Hotel to kind of revitalize Times Square, kind of get rid oh, of absolutely. get rid of some of the CD elements. So, I mean, that that was the argument. That was the UDAG argument. That was UDAG was all about, was to clear away undesirable areas and build. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And and when you look back after all this time, if the Marriott Marquis hadn't been built, I'm not so sure the theaters would be designated landmarks. You know, the original plan for the Marriott Marquis, only it was too early, was that there were going to be two escalators coming out of the front of the marquee where the rounded part is up on the sixth floor, eighth floor. And these escalators would come down to Times Square and they were going to close Broadway between 46th and 45th, so that people leaving the hotel would come down this escalator and walk into a plaza. And the idea, the idea of closing Broadway one block between 45th and 46th was so foreign that the idea was dropped immediately. One of the ways in which I'm approaching, particularly this first episode, but throughout the season, is that there is this curse on the Marquee Theater, you know, from its contentious beginning to all the flops that have been in that theater. What would you say about there being this curse on the Marquee Theater? It showed that we were right, okay, because they were saying, all right, we're destroying 1,100 seats. I don't know how many seats, but we're giving you 1,800 seats. And our argument was very few shows can exist in an 1800 seat theater, especially one that doesn't have a warm feeling like the new Amsterdam, which has 1800 seats. Okay. And that was our argument. It was a completely different type of show that succeed there. And very few shows could succeed there. 
So it just shows we were right. I know that uh, the Cape Man failed not because of the marquee. Uh, the Cape Man failed because of bad publicity that it was. Keep in mind, Hell's Kitchen was still dangerous. It was glorifying the people who made Hell's Kitchen dangerous at one time. And I think that publicity killed the Cape Man more than the Marquis did. The others, the Marquis killed it. <laughs> yeah. As I was going through the history, tearing down all these significant theaters, the Bijou being one of them, never really found much success. And so I'm thinking maybe the ghost of the Bijou, which couldn't find much commercial success, is kind of carrying over into the marquee. That it's it's my own kind of existential way of thinking about this. Oh, just continue. Yeah. <laughs> and just remember, you know, the, the Minskop went through a period where the building was swaying when the wind was blowing hard mm. and the creaking of the columns went through the um, amplification system of the Minskoff. Okay, so that was one big theater that had a big problem. The Marquis, they had a big problem when they opened. First of all, they never had the wing space, but they had constant sewage backup. Well, yeah, I, I read about it. And there was no heating on the stage and yeah, then plumbing that's, that's problems. Yeah. yeah, so even in its design, there were significant flaws in how it was built. And by the way, we work with an architect. We uh, save the theaters, hire an architect to negotiate with Portman and to find a way of saving the theaters and building a hotel above the theaters, meant making his atrium less. And uh, he never agreed to anything. Would you say that Portman was kind of a hard ass, was just very set in his ways? Absolutely. Yeah, it seems like that he, much, much like him and. Ed Koch, the mayor at the time, they were both kind of resolute. This is going to happen, and however we can make it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. You, you've given me so much background and perspective about what was happening before, after, and during. So I, I really appreciate your time. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode with Joe Rosenberg. There will be plenty more of these bonus episodes throughout the season, featuring those I've interviewed about the musicals at the Marquee. As always, thank you to my co-producer, Dan Delgado, as well as Maria Clara Ribeiro. Join us next time as we explore the very first production to open the Marquee, a British musical called Me and My Girl, and its journey to closing night. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.